pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for that you are unwavering, that your purposes, your intentions, your plans are sure and are steady, and that what you set out to do, you will accomplish and bring to fruition. It's a great plan to have a people for your presence, people that know you and over whom you uh, spread your glory, and incorporate us into your glory. Father, we thank you uh, that you have done this in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. On this eve of Yom Kippur, of the Day of Atonement, we thank you for the great atonement that you've accomplished through Jesus. Thank you for this, uh, your generosity and your grace in sending your Son into this world to become like us in every respect. And thank you that in him are met your justice and your compassion and mercy. In him are met your love and your kindness and your righteousness. And it is in his uh, self-given body and his blood that is poured out that we have uh, reconciliation to you and come to know you as our loving God and Father. Father, we thank you for the great gift of forgiveness that uh, through the Lord Jesus, uh, you reach out your arms, hands to the world uh, inviting them to come and find forgiveness at the feet of Jesus, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also, for all nations, that you are a God who cares for all the people that you have made upon this world, um, scattered in all their various uh, lands and tongues and nations. Father, we, uh, on this uh, Mission Sunday, we uh, reflect upon the fact that uh, you've entrusted to us this glorious gospel of the good news in Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray that as we seek to reach out with our hands uh, to the world in blessing and with his good news, that you would indeed bless us in that, that you would give us boldness uh, and confidence in the good news that we have to proclaim. Father, we thank you for all our ministry partners who are here, uh, today and those who are in various places around the world seeking to be uh, hands and feet for you uh, from this place, I ask your blessing upon them, that you would provide for them, that you would give them the grace and boldness to faithfully serve you in reaching out. Father, we thank you for the communities of your people that there are all around the world, yet we know that in many countries it is very difficult to be a follower of Jesus that there is persecution and harassment. So we pray for the persecuted church um, in these various places, that you would sustain your people, that you would uh, give them confidence that though they are being mistreated, that they have, uh, are on the right path, um, that they would know your loving care for them even in the midst of hostility. So sustain them, we pray. And Father, for the rest of our service, we ask your blessing as we've gathered to meet with you um, and pray for Todd as he will come and speak to us uh, at a little moment that uh, you give us open hearts, listening ears, uh, and receptive minds to hear your word to us today. You are a great God, and we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, Todd is going to speak on the topic of the Good Shepherd and his other sheep. And to prepare for that, I will read 
uh, Jesus' description of himself as the good shepherd from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Well, Todd, please come and teach us. Good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with all of you this morning, along with PBCC's missionaries and also my son, John. As Bernard mentioned, I grew up in Palo Alto, became a Christian my senior year in high school. And so I went to my first body life service at PBC in Palo Alto in December of 1969. And halfway through the service, I fell asleep. So four months later at another evening service, um, I stayed awake long enough to hear um, Don Burgess share about his Bible translation work among the Tarumara Indians in the mountains in northern Mexico. And I knew from that night on that Bible translation was to be uh, my life's work. And I'll be speaking today about a topic that's close to my heart, the Good Shepherd and his other sheep. When we think of the Good Shepherd, our imagination is often cluttered with these sentimental images of Jesus as a cuddly, airbrushed shepherd patting around in flannel pajamas and passing out love to his little lambs. And we're not used to hearing his most significant teaching on this subject in John 10 in the context of his running battle with the Pharisees. Since this, <laughs> so, since this passage is the centerpiece of our message, it's important to see how disturbing Jesus' words were for his listeners that day. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. A moment later, he adds, the sheep will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize his voice. The Pharisees don't understand that Jesus is talking about them, so he tries again and makes two audacious claims about himself. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me 
are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and have it to the full. So Jesus cuts deeper this time. The reason the Pharisees don't listen to you, sorry, excuse me, the reason the sheep of Israel don't listen to you Pharisees is because you're out to destroy them. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. As David says in Psalm 35, the Lord delights in the well-being of his servant and his sheep. Jesus then makes an even more audacious and provocative claim about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus really piles it on. Pharisees, these are not your sheep. They are my sheep. I am their long-awaited good shepherd, in contrast to you and all the other unfaithful shepherds who've come before you. I am the good shepherd who willingly lays down my life for the sheep. Well, there's another reason that Jesus' listeners found his words so disturbing. The Pharisees were awaiting a good shepherd for the nation of Israel. But Jesus introduces a startling new element. He is the good shepherd for the global flock from every nation. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus touches a nerve for the Pharisees here. Gentiles becoming one flock with us under one shepherd? May it never be. We are God's only sheep and his only flock. Other sheep who are not just like us, in our flock, absolutely not. Never. So, believe it or not, this is a real animal. Jesus was inviting the Pharisees to imagine their worst nightmare, embracing Gentiles as fellow members of God's kingdom and worshiping Jehovah together with them. No wonder the Pharisees said, he's possessed by a demon and out of his mind. But Jesus hasn't lost his mind at all. His shepherd heart compels him to seek out these other sheep, these Gentile sheep. Here in John 10, Jesus declares his commitment to these other sheep. And then elsewhere in the Gospels, he demonstrates that commitment. We'll just look at two examples. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion in the Jewish city of Capernaum asked Jesus to come and heal his paralyzed servant. 
This man is a Gentile. Yet without hesitation, Jesus offers to do the unthinkable for a Jew and enter his house. The centurion's response is equally remarkable. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels at his statement, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say something even more jarring. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. Can you imagine how outraged Jesus' Jewish listeners must have been? We, the rightful subjects of the kingdom, will be thrown out while the Gentiles will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? Never! It was bad enough for Jesus to announce that Jews and Gentiles will be one flock with one shepherd, but to declare that the Jews, the rightful subjects of the kingdom, will be thrown out of the great feast, while the Gentiles, who know nothing of the Torah and the prophets, will take their places at the table with the patriarchs. That was too much. The good shepherd was looking like a very terrible, bad shepherd to the Pharisees. But Jesus is far more concerned to seek out these other sheep and bring them into the fold than he is about whether he offends the sheep that are already in there. Later, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus withdraws to his, with his disciples to the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, why would he do that? Well, there's a woman there whose daughter has a need that only Jesus can meet. But this woman is a Canaanite, a Gentile. She cries out repeatedly for Jesus to release, release her daughter from demonic oppression. But Jesus does everything possible to convince her along with his disciples, that he's not going to do anything for her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, he says. And then he goes so far as to suggest that Gentiles are no better than dogs waiting for table scraps. But she isn't deterred, and her persistence pays off. And Jesus' delighted response says it all. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Jesus, with the heart of a shepherd, can't keep himself from reaching out to each person he encounters, whoever they are, wherever they are. He himself becomes the bridge between Jew and Gentile who are all in need of a shepherd. These other sheep are not an optional project for Jesus if he has some extra time. I must bring them, he says. They too will listen to my voice. 
Now, Jesus was not only thinking about the other sheep that were alive in that day. He was looking across all the centuries at all the other sheep who would need a shepherd, including us. There's a particular group of other sheep that I want to focus on this morning who make up a largely forgotten fourth of the world's population. These are the two billion plus people who belong to over 3,000 groups who have never met a Christian. And they have little or no access to the gospel. I find those numbers staggering. What would happen if one-fourth of us in the room this morning never made it back home? We just disappeared. We got lost. Everybody would be looking for us. Our names would be on the television, on posters and billboards. Search parties would be organized. This boy is from the Southeast Asian nation, nation of Brunei, which is one of the most restrictive countries in the world for Christian presence and Christian witness. This Muslim boy and this young tribal Cham woman from Cambodia belong to these missing people. No one knows their names. No one is looking for them except Jesus. Why are they and so many others like them still missing from the sheep pen that Jesus prepared for them and from the, around the throne of God? Let me suggest several reasons. First, the further out we move from our respective Jerusalems, the greater the diversity of peoples, languages, and cultures that we encounter. And thus, the more barriers we have to cross to reach the people who have the least opportunity to come in contact with the gospel. The challenge of crossing these barriers helps explain why less than 3% of all today's missionaries are focused on these missing peoples. Another significant factor is the financial priorities of the church around the world. Less than $1 out of every $1,000 that's given to all Christian causes goes to ministry to these unreached peoples. And a third contributing factor in Jesus' day, as in our own, is that the abundant harvest of people who were ready to come to faith dramatically outnumbered the people who were available to bring in the harvest. One day, Jesus surveyed a large crowd who were harassed and helpless, or as this might be more graphically translated, who were thrown down and mangled like lost sheep. As compassion for them welled up in his shepherd heart, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out many more workers into his harvest field. But whether we choose to reach out to these thrown down and mangled sheep or not, others are already doing so. Uh, this past June, my wife Carly and I 
um, met up in Toronto with Matthew, a colleague of mine who works in another ministry I'm involved with called International Partnering Associates. Matthew and his wife, Rachel, purposely moved into one of the massive apartment complex in Toronto in order to minister to the waves of immigrants that pass through there who represent 147 different nations. Now, the regional headquarters for the Mormon church is a large multi-story building in their neighborhood. And all Mormon missionaries sent to Toronto come here for their orientation. And in state-of-the-art classrooms, they undergo weeks of intensive training, which includes learning how to do ethnographic research among the city's um, different immigrant groups. And as a result of their efforts to date, over 60 different language-specific congregations meet in that building. A short walk from where Matthew and Rachel live lies another very dense immigrant neighborhood with 30,000 Pakistanis, Iraqis, Syrians, and Afghans, many of whom speak Urdu. And in order to reach out to their neighbors, the members of the local congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses are all learning Urdu. And what haunts me, Matthew told us, is why those of us who follow Christ don't have the same diligent, persistent concern for the hundreds of unreached peoples and ethnicities found here in this city where, in an allusion to Jonah and Nineveh, there are more than 8 million people who can't tell their right hand from their left. So how will all these lost sheep, these thrown down and mangled sheep that Jesus sees not end up simply being lost or being equally lost as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? What needs to happen for them to take their place in the heavenly worship service that John describes in this dramatic scene from, Romans, from Revelation 7? Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This joyous celebration is the clearest biblical picture we have of the beautiful diversity and inclusiveness that God intends for his church in this world and for his gathered worshipers. In eternity. Several years ago, I was, as I was writing the book that um, Bernard mentioned to, Learning to Lead at the Feet of Jesus, I discovered a pattern that I had never seen so clearly before. Starting from the beginning of Genesis and going clear through to the book of Revelation. Consider Adam and Eve. They have hardly come on the scene when God entrusts them with the responsibility for caring for his beautiful creation. 
They don't do well. But God continues to share his power and authority with Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Deborah, David, the prophets, and many others. As we watch the results throughout history, we have good reason to question God's power-sharing strategy. But God is undaunted. Despite our propensity to misuse whatever he entrusts to us, he's committed to working out his divine purposes through deeply flawed human beings. Jesus followed this same pattern with his 12 consistently unreliable followers, spending three years equipping them to lead his church and prepare his bride. As Jesus approaches his impending death, he tells his disciples in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is about to die. So who's going to go into all the world and do that? After he rises from the dead, he makes the answer perfectly clear on multiple occasions. Jesus informs the eleven, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Did they feel ready for that huge responsibility? Not likely. On another occasion in Matthew 28, Jesus tells them something equally amazing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. But what does he do with it? He gives it to us. We are the ones who are going to go in his name, on his behalf, for his glory. That's an astonishing act of trust on Jesus' part. But it's accompanied by his promise Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We may be the ones speaking, but Jesus promises that it will be his voice that they hear. Later in the opening chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus reveals how it's all going to happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. His disciples' role as witnesses was to go where these other sheep were, to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, not to bring them all back to Jerusalem or to Silicon Valley. So when Jesus says, I must bring these other sheep, he actually means... I am sending you to these other sheep. Jesus has been sending out his followers to seek out these other sheep for 2,000 years. In the recent past, virtually all of those who went out 
came from the United States and Europe. This was the first wave of modern missionaries, a period in mission history that has been called from the West to the rest. Thousands of women and men uh, served sacrificially all over the world, and many of them gave their lives. These missionaries were sustained by their strong convictions about the power of the gospel. But many of them held an equally strong conviction that only Westerners could do such mission work. They found it difficult to believe that their non-Western counterparts could or should join them because in their minds, these men and women did not have the maturity, the competence, or the resources to do so. But toward the latter part of the 20th century, as the center of gravity of world Christianity moved outside North America and Europe, the growing church in countries like Nigeria, Brazil, India, Korea, and elsewhere recognized that God had also given them responsibility and an important role to play in outreach. This became the second wave of missionaries. So the message was no longer from the West to the rest, but from everywhere and everyone to everywhere and everyone. But there was still a great deal of resistance to indigenous peoples from these same countries being involved in cross-cultural missions, for many of the reasons already mentioned. Few believed that men like Ricardo and Paulo, who are pictured here, could possibly have a role to play because their way of life seemed to outsiders to be so out of touch with the modern world. One factor that began to change that perception was when the Bible was translated into the languages of these people. Those like this Rendili woman from Kenya gained a new sense of dignity when the Rendili people had a Bible in their own language. Now I'd like to highlight a few examples of what God is doing from everywhere to everywhere through the ministry of several friends and colleagues from Latin America and the Philippines. First example, the Three Waves movement in Latin America beautifully represents what we've just been talking about. This Three Waves movement is dedicated to mobilizing all three missionary waves in developing the indigenous church in the Amazon basin to fulfill the Great Commission. The steering committee for the movement is made up of representatives from each of these three waves. Tina Ferry and her husband Chris from the US represent the first wave. I work together with them in International Partnering Associates. Javier Mallorca from Colombia represents the second wave. Javier and I serve together on a Bible translation-focused team that I'll mention in a minute. And Enrique Terena from Brazil represents the third wave. I've enjoyed participating with him in several um, mission leaders workshops in Brazil. Second example comes from the southern Philippines. I met Bambi 12 years ago when we invited a number of younger leaders to a gathering of international partnering associates near Toronto. Bambi got her start in missions the same age I did 
when she was 17. Her pastor asked the church to pray for a church leader, Christian leader in Myanmar. She continued to pray for Myanmar almost every night for four years while she attended university. And she joined the first student mission conference in the Philippines. Fast forward to today. Bambi is one of the most gifted partnering trainers I know, whose influence extends far beyond the Philippines. In a recent email, she wrote, tomorrow evening I start an online partnering training workshop for four people, someone who wants to start a partnership in a restricted country, a 32-year-old I'm mentoring who leads a youth mission mobilizers network, and two South Africans who are part of a network focused on the migrants in South Africa from unreached people groups. The third example takes us back to Latin America and to David Cardenas in Colombia. Like Bambi, David has been involved in missions since his teens. He and I began a friendship when we met at a uh, leadership training event in Kenya in 2013. Today he serves as the missions pastor for a thriving church in Bogota, as well as being the Wycliffe director for North and South America. Several years ago, David had a vision to establish Bible translation roundtables in every country in Latin America to ensure that all the remaining translation needs in their respective countries would be met. And these roundtables bring together translation agencies, churches, and indigenous peoples in each country. And I'll be with David in Bogota in Colombia next month um, as part of a team training the facilitators for these roundtables. Last month, David traveled to Peru to do a workshop for indigenous leaders. And first, he asked the participants to reflect on their own indigenous beliefs and practices about leaders. Then they went to the Gospels to watch Jesus and listen to him. And David's goal was to help these men and women discern how can we lead in ways that are authentically biblical and authentically indigenous. So at this point, some of you may be wondering, do Americans still need to be involved in missions since God is sending out and raising up missionaries from other parts of the world? I assure you there's still plenty of room for those like the couple we commissioned this morning, as well as believers from every other nation, to be part of the movement from everywhere to everywhere. I'd like to share three convictions about Jesus, the Good Shepherd. First, the ministry of the Good Shepherd is far more expansive than we might have imagined. We all love David's deeply personal connection to the Good Shepherd in the opening verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It's comforting to imagine ourselves as the primary object of the Good Shepherd's attention and affection. But when we come to John 10, we discover that the Good Shepherd is not only concerned about us, he has many other sheep to bring into his sheepfold. 
As he gathers all his sheep into one flock, he calls us to recognize that he is our shared shepherd, Jew and Gentile, Iranian and Ecuadorian, Nigerian and Mongolian. Imagine Jesus shepherding such an immense flock and not losing one of them. Second, the good shepherd longs for us to share his shepherd heart for his other sheep. When others saw undesirable riffraff, Jesus saw sheep in need of a shepherd. When others wanted to silence the cries of those like the distraught mother with her demon-oppressed daughter, Jesus heard their cries and went to them. We prefer to limit our circle to what is familiar and comfortable. Jesus keeps expanding it. He's relentlessly working to enlarge our hearts and extend our vision. He enlarges our hearts not only to make room for these other sheep beyond our circle of friends, our church, and our community, but to embrace them. And he extends our vision, lifting up our eyes beyond our immediate surroundings and our own personal perspective. What barriers in our own hearts may be keeping us from seeking out and welcoming these other sheep who are different enough from us to make us feel uncomfortable, fearful, or even angry. Third, the Good Shepherd's strategy for seeking out his other sheep is us. It's a startling strategy, calling lost sheep to seek out other lost sheep. But we're his only strategy. He doesn't have a backup plan. We don't all have to personally go to the ends of the earth. But what if all of us chose not to participate in Jesus' strategy? How do we imagine that those at the ends of the earth would have the opportunity to know and follow Jesus and to take their place as worshipers around God's throne. We can't delegate concern for these sheep back to Jesus. He gave it to us. And we can't delegate it to the mission council or to mission agencies to handle on our behalf. Jesus gave this responsibility to the whole church. Can you imagine if the church in Antioch in the book of Acts had not responded to the Holy Spirit's direction to send out Paul and Barnabas, the book of Acts would have been very short indeed. You may be thinking, others are more qualified than I am. God didn't ask them, he asked us. I'm not ready, we protest. God does not wait until we think we're ready. If God had waited for Moses to be ready, the Israelites would still be slaves in Egypt. So how can we join Jesus as he moves ever outward toward these communities 
who have never had a personal encounter with a Christian. For some of us, this question arouses fear and uncertainty. What's God going to ask of us? For others, it arouses a sense of anticipation and excitement. How might God work in us and through us? On the back of the bulletin insert about missing people, there's a number of places where you can learn more about ministry to these other sheep. And please do take this opportunity to visit the booths of PBC's missionaries and get connected to some of these great people. Maybe God will use specific passages of Scripture to capture your attention and imagination. Maybe he'll bring individuals into your life to provide guidance and encouragement. As you listen to the world news, God may bring a specific country or region of the world and put it on your heart. Some of Jesus' other sheep lost their homes and their livelihoods in the recent earthquakes in Morocco, Turkey, and Syria. Others saw their families and their whole neighborhoods washed away in the floods in Libya. I want to share a final story with you about Carl, one of the younger men that I meet with regularly um, to go through the book, Learning to Lead at the Feet of Jesus. Carl worked on a roofing crew with about 20 guys. When they broke for lunch, the Hispanics sat over here, the Christians sat here, and the tear-off crew sat here. And as Carl describes them, the tear-off crew was mostly 18 to 20-year-olds who had a girlfriend and three kids and used colorful language. They would have used other words for that. But, um, so one lunchtime, Carl's reflecting on what he was learning from watching Jesus in the Gospels. And he got up and he went and sat down with a tear-off crew. And he practiced what someone is called awkwardly loving. Going where he felt very uncomfortable. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. And the tariff guys felt equally uncomfortable. What is Carl doing sitting with us? And I think they probably had to clean up their language a little bit. Um, but Carl persevered. He went back the next day and the next day and slowly built trust and friendship. Eventually, he invited one of the guys to go spearfishing with him. And it went on from there. Sometime later, when one of the tear-off crew was talking with Carl, he said to him, Remember when you used to hate us, Carl? And that couldn't have been further from the truth, but that's the way the tear-off crew assumed that the Christians felt about them. I share this story because God puts each of us in situations where we have to choose whether or not to cross invisible barriers, as Carl did, to awkwardly love others who don't look like us or act like us or talk like us. What story could your life tell that you'll never know until you make your next move in following Jesus 
toward these other sheep. Jesus is not collecting fans who admire him from a distance. He is seeking followers to participate with him in his mission. Well, I'd like to invite the music team to come up now as um, close with a benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.